a joy to be with you this evening, to be able to uh, bring you the uh, Word of God, and in particular, we want to continue our sermon series uh, on the book of Hebrews. Uh, there's the, uh, the last of the Mohicans, uh, but then there's what you would call the penultimate of the Mohicans, the second to last. And so this is the penultimate sermon, the second to last sermon uh, in uh, uh, our look here at Hebrews. And so what we want to do this evening is we want to uh, look at verses, uh, verses 7 through 17, verses 7 through 17 uh, of chapter 13. So uh, if you would please, uh, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. And then after we read, then we'll uh, have a brief word of prayer, and then we'll get into the word uh, and the preaching of the word. So let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we give thanks that you have brought us here this evening, that you have given us a day of rest and worship and anticipation of that eternal heavenly rest that we possess already in Christ, but that we still yet seek to enter. And you tell us, even in the book of Hebrews, that we should strive to enter that rest. And so, Lord, we pray that indeed you would enable us to do so, that you would feed us with Christ, the manna from heaven, and that in so doing you would give us the strength that we might strive, that we might run the race well, that we would find satisfaction and contentment solely in your word and that in so doing, you would not only glorify yourself, but that you would further conform us to the image of your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote an important essay. I don't know if it's perhaps his most important, but it's certainly one that has struck me uh, in a particular way. And the other, I, essay's title is called The Inner Ring. And what he addresses in this particular essay is the penchant that we all have for wanting to be a part of that inner circle, uh, wherever it is that we find ourselves in life. You know, perhaps it's that uh, inner circle of people at work 
that you see that they're not necessarily explicitly defined, but they're a part of the group of people that seem to make and call the shots in the office. Or perhaps it's that inner circle of people within our community, uh, dare I say, the movers and shakers, they're the influential crowd, they're the people that, uh, that, that if they wear a certain type of clothing, drive a certain type of car, well then everybody else gravitates towards that and they all seem to call the shots. Or perhaps it's within the broader culture, the invisible circle of influential institutions and people that invisibly steer the ship of our culture in one direction or another, so much so that people within the broader church want to do what they can to position their churches to be a part of that decisive circle, to be a part of that group, to somehow influence the world around them. We want to be a part of this circle that's influential, that makes decisions, that is accepted, that is liked. I think there's a sense in which all of us, to one degree or another, fear being the outsider. I think this was certainly the fear of the persecuted Christians to whom the author of Hebrews wrote here in this letter. They feared being outsiders because they didn't want to suffer persecution. They wanted to be insiders. They wanted to be those that were part of that influential crowd that not only got to steer the culture in a particular direction, they also got to decide who was in, who was out, and in this particular case, the Jewish Christians were out. On the one hand, it's certainly understandable. Who among us wants to suffer? But on the other hand, sometimes the cost of being an insider can be steep. Uh, I finished reading a book, and I had even also watched a documentary that uh, covered the same topic of an elite soldier who was accused of committing murder, murdering a prisoner. And this was in the headlines uh, for uh, a couple of uh, years ago, and uh, it was perhaps especially uh, on my radar because uh, it was part of a military unit that was based where I used to live or just outside of where I used to live. And it was interesting because one of the things that a number of people said about this particular military unit, and I suspect that it's no different for this unit than it is and many other of these inner circles, is that they placed loyalty to the unit above everything else. You place loyalty to the unit above truth. You place loyalty to the unit above family. You place loyalty uh, to the unit above even the broader branch of the service to which they were supposed to be uh, in submission to. Well, in this particular case, these persecuted Christians were having to decide to whom would they be loyal. Would they be loyal to, to Christ and be willing to suffer persecution, or would they instead place loyalty to this group of people that was persecuting them? If you wanted to be an insider, you had to forsake Christ and you had to return to the old life of Judaism. You had to act as if Christ had never come. This, of course, this move would secure your insider status and it would abate the flood of persecution. But those receding floodwaters would leave a drought, a spiritual drought that could dry up your soul and leave your life empty empty of salvation, empty of the grace of God. And so this is why the the author here closes out his letter with one last final call, 
One last final call to his recipients, calling them to live the life of outsiders. He calls them to live a life shaped by the cross of Christ. And he also reminds them that once more where the source of their ability to live life as outsiders comes from, it comes from the gospel of Christ. Nowhere else, nowhere else. And so the first thing we want to think about is we want to think about life outside the camp. This is one of the themes that the author talks about. Secondly, we want to think about the importance of obeying leaders. And then third, we want to think about the outcomes, the outcomes to which the author of Hebrews desires to see in the people to whom he writes. So living outside the camp, obeying leaders, and then third and finally the outcomes. So let's give thought first to what the author says about living outside the camp. If we want to draw a large following, I think marketing firms would undoubtedly tell us first you have to create a message. And then from that message, you have to create a brand. You have to make the brand appealing. And you have to show what benefits the brand will produce. Well, this methodology and messaging, I think, is what draws people to want to be a part of various inner circles of whatever they, whatever they may be. You know, if it's clothing, you have to appeal to people to show, hey, this is why you want to wear this brand of clothing. This is why so many products, when they're advertising their products, it's not so much about the product as much as the kind of life that you will get to lead if you live in our product, if you use our product, if you consume it, if you wear it, if you buy it. Well, the author calls the recipients of his letter to something very entirely different. He's not trying to appeal to them on the attractiveness of the Christian life. There's almost a sense in which he's putting its unattractiveness front and center. He says here in verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I think what happened is that the people were suffering, they were being persecuted, and they thought something has to be going wrong. If Christ has forgiven me of my sin, and I have the gift and the blessing of eternal life, shouldn't my life improve, not get worse? And in this case, the author draws the gaze of our faith to Jesus Christ suffering upon the cross outside the gates of the city. If you recall the, the geographic architecture of the Israelite camp, dwelling outside the camp was to dwell in exile. It was to be, in a sense, either disciplined or ultimately cursed. Remember about the book of Leviticus and what it would say, for example, to do with someone uh, who was unclean, they were to be sent outside the camp. What was to happen to the leftovers of the sacrifice, whether it was the skins or the entrails, those things were to be taken outside the camp and were to be burned outside the camp. Well, the author reminds us of this in verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. If you recall from Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest was supposed to take the sins of the nation, figuratively speaking, 
place his hands over the head of the sacrificial goat, uh, or the scapegoat, I should say, confess the nation's sins over the scapegoat, and then send the goat away outside of the camp, never to return. Life outside of the camp was life where there were Gentiles. It was the, the haunt of demons. It was the dwelling place of wild beasts. It was inhospitable, unfriendly. It was a place of exile and curse. And so this is why the religious leaders crucified Jesus outside the gates of the city. He was cursed. He was cursed. And so I think it's this particular notion that as we read this and as we encounter this in the Bible, it can sweep away all sorts of romantic notions that we might have about the cross of Christ. In our culture, it's often romanticized. We've turned crosses uh, into greeting cards. We've turned crosses into art. We've turned crosses into jewelry. And yet the cross was anything but those things. And in fact, Jesus was exiled, cursed, and in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, he was cut off from the land of the living. He suffered curse. And so there's a sense in which, in the crucifixion of Jesus, we can say his crucifixion, in some sense, permanently brands Jesus as an outsider. He's never going to play a role in the inside crowd, whether it's politics, whether it's finance, uh, whether it's you know, the social ladder, whether it's education, no matter what it is, he's always going to be the outsider. Why? Because he's crucified. This is a shameful thing. He's outside the camp. He's cursed. He's cut off. And yet, this is the very thing to which the author calls his recipients. He says in verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. How's that for marketing? It's not exactly, you know, brand friendly. And the very same call to go to Jesus outside the camp that the author wrote to the recipients of his letter is the same call that he gives to us. We have to go to Jesus outside the camp. Now, in one sense, this is nothing new. This is the same call that Jesus gives us as his disciples when he says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we could say that this is the Hebrews version of Christ's call to discipleship of taking up the cross, except he puts it in these stark terms of go outside the camp. And so there's a sense in which what the author captures here is what we can call the costliness of grace. And this is something that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, once wrote about when he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So much of the church preaches cheap grace. Have Jesus, but you don't have to suffer. 
Have Jesus. And you can be a part of the inside crowds, whatever they do. Have Jesus, even if it means denying Jesus to a certain extent, so that you can embrace whatever it is that inner circle is asking you to embrace. Costly grace, Bonhoeffer says, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. What Bonhoeffer is saying is costly grace means you're either all out or you're all in. It's nothing or everything. Nothing in between. Think about Queen Esther. She was an insider. She was in the royal court. She's the queen. She's essentially risen to the second highest position in all of the land. She had a choice. She knew because of what Mordecai told her, your people are going to suffer. They're going to die. So she had a choice. She could remain an insider and keep her ethnicity a secret and not let anybody know, hey, I'm Jewish. Or she could, so to speak figuratively, go outside the camp and connect with her people to say, I'm with them. And Mordecai says it may be for such a time that you have been placed right there in the inner circle for this very moment. And she knew that by going in to see the king, she could be risking her life. Because if the king did not want to see her, he could immediately demand her execution for entering into the presence of the king. But she was willing to go outside the camp to where Jesus was, to forsake her insider status. Think about Moses' parents. Why is it, and I have to pick up, I picked up this, uh, this insight from, from David Strain, but why is it that Pharaoh's daughter was so readily able and easily able to identify Moses, the infant, as an Israelite child, a Hebrew child? When she found him in the basket, she immediately says, oh, look, it's a Hebrew child. He was circumcised. If you're living in a time when Pharaoh says, I want you to execute all of the male infants in the land that belong to the Hebrew people, then you would think that the last thing you would want to do is to brand your child as a Hebrew by circumcising him. That's going to make him an outsider. You want to keep him safe as an insider. Don't circumcise him. Hide who he is. Hebrews 11.23, which we looked at maybe several months ago by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They said, no, we're going to Jesus outside the camp. We will mark our child with the sign of the covenant, even if that puts him in danger, because God's promises are more important than whatever threats the king of, Pharaoh, or the king of Egypt may, may, may give What about Moses? He's an insider. He's raised within Pharaoh's household. 
He is raised in the lap of luxury. He probably has every single luxury benefit uh, and uh, you know accoutrement that he could think of. And what does the author of Hebrews say in verses 24 and following of the 11th chapter? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He said, no, I'm going outside the camp. I'm going to Jesus Now, I say that, of course, anachronistically, but nevertheless, whether it's Esther, whether it's Moses' parents, or whether it was Moses, they counted the blessings of the gospel, whatever outsider status it may have labeled them, to be of greater worth than anything that the world could give them, even if it meant preserving life. They said, no, my life is not worth it. The gospel is far more worth anything, including my life. So how do we answer this call? How do we answer this call to go to Christ outside the camp, to go with him outside the gates where he suffers? Well, this brings us to our second point, which is obeying leaders. First, I think we need, we need godly leaders, those who have the image of Christ and the way of the cross of Christ embossed upon their lives, upon their hearts. The author says there in the first part of verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. The author calls the recipients of his letter to remember their leaders, those who had taught him the word of God. And he's not merely calling them to say, remember them fondly. Take a stroll down memory lane as you recall how how it was good to fellowship with them, the smile that they always had on their face, although I'm sure that those things can be done. Rather, he gives them a twofold instruction. First, he wanted them to remember the things that they taught, the truth to which they pointed them. Verse 9 of chapter 13, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He didn't want them wandering from the faith and trying to return to their former ways of life. Adhering to the food laws of the Old Testament is of no benefit, he's saying, in light of the incarnation of Christ, in the light of the completed work of Christ. You know, there's always a good test, I think, whenever we're trying to determine whether or not a leader, a pastor, an elder is somebody that we should follow. And the question is, is do they consistently point us to Christ or do they point in other directions? Do they consistently point us to Christ? And this is the first thing he's saying. He's saying, follow these men, obey them as they lead you and point you to Christ. But secondly... He could point to their leaders because they not only taught them the things of Christ, but they embodied these truths. Latter half of verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. In other words, he's saying, look to these godly leaders, follow them as they follow Christ. Follow them as they teach you Christ. They're pointing you to Christ, but not only do they say it in their words, they also live it out 
in their lives. In other words, the truth of Christ flows into the leaders and out of the various ways that they live it in their lives. You know, Paul, for example, excoriated his fellow Jews for leading hypocritical lives. He says in Romans 2, 21 and 22, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I think in short, one of the most vital elements... One of the most vital elements that enables us as Christians to follow Christ, to go outside the camp, to be outsiders, is whether we have leaders who live and speak the truth. Do we hear and see the voice and the life of Christ in our leaders, in our pastors, and in our elders? I think first and foremost, this means that if this is the case, if this is to be the case, we have to pray for our church leaders. We have to pray that God would, first of all, give us godly leaders, not the leaders that we deserve, but rather the leaders that we need. Moreover, we need to pray that God would preserve our godly leaders. You know, what does Jesus say, quoting the prophet Zechariah, that if you strike down the shepherd, you can scatter the sheep? This is an important principle, and this is why the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders. These are men who have not only taught you the truth of the gospel of Christ, but they live it out, which means in this context, They were not only teaching and preaching the forgiveness of sins that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but they were also teaching the way of the cross and they were embodying it in their lives. They were willing to suffer. They were not saying, do as I do, or sorry, do as I say, not as I do. But godly leaders are only a part of the equation in being able to follow Christ outside the camp. And this brings us to our third and final point, which is the outcomes. We can say the outcomes that the, the author of Hebrews was seeking as he uh, you know, brings this letter to a close. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again And again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. You remember Christ's parable of the persistent widow and the judge always asking, give me what I desire, give me what I desire. You know, an image that comes to mind is that of Jacob wrestling uh, with the pre-incarnate Christ in the desert, uh, and he wrestled with him all night long. I wrestle with my kids for all of about five minutes, and then I'm like, okay, dad's done, you know? Or anytime we get to a swimming pool, my kids say, come on, dad, get in the pool. And I'm like, no, dad is not a pool toy. Uh, You know, that's all I become. It's like you get in the pool and the kids start climbing all over dad. And I'm like, no, come on, man, I'm too old for that. That lasts for about four minutes, and then it's like, okay, I'm out. I'm going to back sit up there on, on the beach chair with your mom. I'm done. I can't imagine wrestling all night. But I think that Jacob wrestled with him all night because 
He was that desirous for the blessing. I am not letting you go until you bless me. Where does he get that motivation? Where does he get that desire? What is it that drives us to seek God's grace again and again and to knock incessantly? The godly leaders point us to Christ, the only source of our life, our motivation and our desire to live for him. So they're pointing us to Christ, which is why the author says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's saying, these Jews, they think that the food laws is what will save them. We have food from which they're not allowed to eat, and that is the food that God has given us in the manna from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've undoubtedly heard the saying, you are what you eat. Well, another version of this is you become what you worship. If we consume Christ with the mouth of faith, he's going to transform our lives. He's going to change our desires. Belonging to the inner circle will no longer have any appeal to us because our only desire will be to seek Christ, to follow him outside the camp. There's a saying among some elite soldiers that when they get into their training, they say they get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's what we need to be as Christians. We need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying we should try to be purposefully weird. I'm not saying that. You know, don't, we don't want to be weirdos. <laughs> we want to be faithful to Jesus. That's not the same thing as being a weirdo. We can be weirdos. That's an easy thing to pull off. Being faithful to Jesus is something distinct. And if we're faithful to Jesus and we seek him by consuming him, whether it's by prayer, whether it's through the word of God, whether it's through the preaching of the word of God, through the means of grace, then he's going to give us that desire to draw near to him, like Jacob clinging to him and wrestling with him, refusing to let go until he blesses us. That will be our desire. And being a part of the inner circle will have no appeal to us, no lure for us, no attractiveness to it whatsoever. We'll join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, princes in the kingdom of God, and yet they dwelled in tents. We'll join Moses' parents in marking our children with the gospel of Christ, and that people will know them for their righteous conduct, for their godliness. They will stand out. They will be noticeable. Why don't your kids go along with the crowd? We'll stand by the cross of Christ when others hid and ran away. And as we join Christ outside the camp, because he gives us this desire, Christ will nourish us, sustain us, and strengthen us so that we will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We won't be filled with longing as we see the revelry, the opulence, and the acceptance uh, and the popularity of the inner circle. And so again, verses 13 and 14, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We should feel like outsiders all the time. Because this is not our home. This is not our home. 
It was St. Augustine in his famous city of God. He says, the earthly city, that is the city of man, the city of unbelief, the earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all, even out of human beings, that she might adore them with sacrifices. The heavenly city, that is those who believe in Christ, The city of God, the heavenly one on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world, makes no false gods for herself. On the contrary, she herself is made by the true God that she may be herself a true sacrifice to him. That's where our citizenship lies. Not in the earthly, but in the heavenly city. It's like I've got this really bad habit. And sometimes it serves me well, sometimes it serves me poorly, sometimes it drives my wife bananas. Uh, So when it does that, then it's, it's probably not a good thing. But when we go on a trip, towards the end of the trip, I start getting a hankering. I'm like, what do you say we go back home a day early? And she'll be like, no, why do we want to go back a day early? I'm like, well, don't you want to be home? She's like, no, I want to be here, you know, for the duration of our reservation. Well, aren't you kind of tired? Don't you want to get back and be back in our own bed and our own kitchen and in our own house? Every once in a blue moon, she's like, yeah, let's go home. I'm ready to go home, even if it's a day early. I always want to be home. I'm a homebody. I'm a homebody. I love to be home. Is that our desire? Do we always want to be home that is in our heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem, with the people of God? Is that where our longing is? Do we treat this world around us as if we're just a passing through? Or do we treat this as our home? If we treat this world as our home, then the inside crowd is going to matter to us a lot. But if we treat this world as simply a place that we're passing through, then whether the world accepts us or not won't matter to us. What will matter to us is whether Christ accepts us and whether his people accept us. When we join Christ outside the camp and we put aside the inner circle, this is ultimately, it constitutes an act of worship. Verses 15 and 16, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We don't offer sacrifices the way the Old Testament saints did. Rather from a foundation of the once for all sufficient sacrifice of of Jesus Christ, we offer up our lives as living sacrifices. But once again, we can only do this through him, through Christ, by faith in him. And what we have to recognize is that our acts of sacrificial living are not necessarily grand acts, but rather they're things that to the ordinary person look pedestrian, mundane, and regular. What what, what are some of those things? Verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What does life outside the camp look like? What does a cruciform life look like? It may not look like leading thousands to Christ. It may look like something as simple as obeying leaders. 
Why? Because these are the men that are pointing us to Christ. These are the men that have the cross of Christ engraved upon their hearts. And they're leading us, and so we need to do everything we can to follow them as they seek to follow Christ. It's by something as ordinary as obeying our leaders where we live cruciform lives and bring glory to God. C.S. Lewis observed about that quest for seeking the inner ring of all passions. The passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man to do very bad things. Are we going to let our desire for acceptability, likability, popularity and accept us and acceptance conform us and our practices and our mores and our desires to the practices, mores and desires of the inner ring? Or are we going to seek and follow Christ and go to him outside the camp? Only when we remember where our true citizenship lies and where Christ beckons will we be able to take up our crosses and follow him. And so pray, beloved in Christ, that he would awaken us uh, from our sleepy faith, that we might feed upon Christ, and as the author says, that we would go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given us Christ. We were undeserving of your mercy and instead have received this wonderful gift, unspeakable love, unfathomable depths, unending mercies. And so we give you thanks, O Lord. But we pray at the same time that you would give us fidelity, that you would help us to be faithful and to obey you and to obey our leaders. Oh, Father, the world's call is a siren call that is very attractive. And it appeals to us because we seek comfort. We seek peace. We seek acceptance. But, oh, Lord, let us not trade our inheritance in Christ for such temporary and fleeting things. Help us to remember that only you can comfort us in Christ. Help us to remember, O Lord, that only you can give us true peace that comes through the gospel, through Christ and the Spirit, and that ultimately the only acceptance in this world that truly matters is that acceptance that you have received us in Christ, that you have accepted us, that you have saved us, that you have given your very own Son for us, and that in so doing you would fill our hearts with a desire to go to Christ outside the camp, that we would, know, we would not long for the life of the inner circle, that we would joyfully, peacefully, lovingly dwell with Christ outside the camp and that we would call others to that same place, that you would emboss the cross of Christ upon our hearts and lives, that we would live for you and live for your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.